I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. In this podcast, I try to bring together two things that are really important to me. First, the good news about Jesus Christ and his life and teachings uh, recorded for us in the Gospels and also in the New Testament, and a Japanese concept called Wabi Sabi, which has to do with recognizing the intrinsic value in things, the intrinsic beauty in things that are maybe old or broken or discarded. Things that are not bright and shiny and new, but things that have substance. And I believe that's how Jesus saw people. It's how he treated people. And so I like to try and bring those two concepts together throughout this podcast. We are in Season 5, Episode 17. This is entitled, Whose Side Are You On? And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33, if you want to turn there in your own Bible. Uh, if you'd like to become a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi, you can see how to do that in the program notes on a Spotify page, or you can go to my website, jeffebert.com, and you'll find a link there on some different ways that you can become a financial supporter. If you have any questions about that or something doesn't work out, you can always contact me through my website, jeffebert.com. You'll see a way to email me there, and please do so if you have comments or questions or anything like that. I would love to hear from any of you. So anyway, we are into uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and so uh, today I'm just sad to say that our country is very divided. We have passionate people on all sides of every issue. you got Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and a lot of people who've just checked out. There's Israel and the Gaza Strip, Ukraine and Russia, gender roles, education, the economy, pick an issue. People demand to know, you know, whose side are you on? And the more passionate they are, the more pressure they're going to put on you to declare your loyalty. Whose side are you on? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the biggest issue that divided people was, you know, like who might win the Super Bowl? But that's simply wishful thinking. Now, on many issues, there are good people who see things differently, who come up with different answers to the same questions. Many complex areas where black and white answers, you know, they don't apply, where compromise is necessary, where listening and understanding and forbearance are needed where solutions could actually happen if people would just put aside their own lust for power, their greed, their need to control, their desire for recognition, or their, just their, their loyalty to themselves, where people actually act for the greater good. But that's also wishful thinking. I mean, there are lots of areas in life that are not simply right or wrong, but there are some areas that are, that from God's point of view are very clear-cut, where you have to pick a side. And there is no middle ground. Areas that require a response, areas where God would say not to decide is to decide. You can't just hang out in the middle forever. Not to decide is to decide, and it's a no. Because God requires a positive declaration. Let me say that again. Sometimes God requires a positive declaration, not just a neutral stance hanging out in the middle. And that's the point of today's scripture passage. And it is a difficult passage to read and understand unless you remember how divided the Christians in the first century Corinth really were and how the Apostle Paul had to write to them to try and straighten them out. If you've been with us in previous episodes, which I think is the best way to listen to this podcast from the beginning of chapter 1 through the end, but if you've been with us, you'll remember that the Corinthian church was divided by this misguided loyalty to various leaders. And Paul had to put a stop to that. They were divided by lawsuits going on against each other. They were divided by their approach to church discipline when one of their men members went way off track and they weren't doing anything about it. 
They were divided about male and female relationships, the role of marriage and singleness. And then Paul spends three chapters dealing with an issue that at first glance doesn't seem to be very relevant to our lives today. This issue of eating meat that's sold in the marketplace that had first been butchered as part of the worship ceremonies for the pagan gods in all of the temples throughout Corinth. Now, back in chapter 8, Paul said that if you buy that meat in the marketplace, it's okay to eat. It's not contaminated in any way simply because of where it came from. There's nothing inherently mystical about the meat. So enjoy. It's okay. You have the freedom in Christ to buy the meat that's been used in temple sacrifices. But if someone who became a Christian and came out of that religious background, that paganism, and who simply just couldn't get over that the food was used in a ritual dedicated to a false god, and it would cause their own faith to stumble, then you should be the more mature person and not eat it, because you don't want to do damage to their conscience. And Paul was asking people to lay aside their freedoms and consider the other person's feelings and spiritual condition. And that makes sense. But here in chapter 10, it's a different issue. What if you go to a non-Christian's home for dinner? And they purposefully tell you that what you are, they are serving you is left over from their pagan worship. And that their understanding was, as they serve the meal, their pagan god is a guest at the table with you. Then what do you do? That's different from just buying your own food from the butcher. So what do you do then when there is social pressure and their eyes are on you and maybe they've set you up for a particular issue? Well, Paul connects this table to the celebration of the Lord's table. And that's what we're going to uh, talk about in a few minutes. He connects it to the larger issue of idolatry, not just the worship of statues made of stone like the Corinthians worshipped, but the larger issue of looking at our own hearts and where our true loyalty lies, with Christ or with something else. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to the end. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, and we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, he quotes, he says, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, he quotes, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For, and then he quotes from Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, end quote. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been sacrificed or this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it. 
both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. What is an idol? What is this stuff about idols so important that it's talked about throughout the Bible? And why is it important to us today? Well, simply put, an idol is anything that we value more than the one true God. Anything, any person, cause, object, anything that captivates our mind's attention or our heart's affection rather than God. Anything where we give that object or person what we should rightly give to God alone. And it's not just stone statues. Archaeology limits idols to things made of stone or wood, but biblical theology teaches us that an idol is anything that takes God's place. Anything that captures our hearts and imaginations and becomes the filter through which we see the world. It could be something blatantly evil, like the worship of a false god. That would be easy to spot. But more likely, it could be something good. Your spouse, a child, someone you're dating, your career, your intelligence, your fitness, or even a cause or a humanitarian project. A good thing can become an idol when we elevate it to be our best thing. Let me say that again. A good thing becomes an idol when we elevate it to be our best thing, when we elevate it above Christ. So idolatry isn't just ancient history. It is flourishing in our world. It is very much alive. So let me ask you some diagnostic questions that you can answer just for yourself to bring to the surface some of the struggles with idols. Ask yourself this. What is my greatest nightmare and what do I worry about the most? What if I failed at or lost it? Would it cause me to feel that I would not want to live? What do I really rely on or comfort myself with when things go bad? What do I do to look for comfort? What goes, where, where does my mind go easily? What do I daydream about? And what does my mind dwell on? What prayer, if it goes unanswered, would make me seriously consider turning away from God? What gives me the most self-worth? What am I proudest of? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? Now, these are all normal things, even good things, that can become idols when we make them our best things. When we worry excessively, we're giving that worry more power in our lives than the power of God. When we lose something and it devastates us, and I'm not talking about just the loss of a loved one, I mean, also losing a job or a house or some physical object, that means we have valued that thing more than the Lord. When we go to something for comfort and never seek comfort from the Lord, that's a problem. If you go to booze, if you go to sex, if you go to drugs, if you go to your TV, and you don't go to your Lord, that's a problem. When our minds are consumed by earthly things and we never give a passing thought to God, that's a problem. That's an idol. When we place our personal value in our accomplishments or possessions, that's an idol. The ancient world was full of idols, and so was our present one. And the question is the same for us. How can followers of Jesus remain faithful to him while living in a world that overflows with idols? The Corinthian Christians struggled with this because they forgot their identity was rooted in Christ. They began to care too much about how the people around them looked at them. People in the ancient 
uh, in the ancient Greek world and Roman world saw Christians as being foolish or irrational because of their beliefs about Jesus. The belief that God took on human flesh, died on a cross, rose from the dead in a human body. Those beliefs were thought to be either foolish or offensive. We've seen that earlier in this text. Christians were seen as being arrogant and intolerant. The ancient world was filled with all kinds of religious diversity, and nobody cared what God you worshipped. Whatever works for you, as long as you also worship the Roman emperor as a divine being, no problem. Once a year, all Roman citizens were required to bow down before the emblem of the emperor and acknowledge him as their ultimate god. And so every other god could be worshipped as long as you worshipped the emperor the most. Christians, well, they couldn't do that. So they were looked on as rebels, as troublemakers, as being disloyal. A second century enemy of Christianity named Celsus wrote sarcastically, they alone, they say, know the right way to live. Another enemy of the Christian faith named Tacitus called Christians haters of mankind because they refused to go along with the crowd. So how do you engage with a world that calls your beliefs irrational and your views intolerant? Well, you engage with a world that thinks you are haters full of hate speech when you try to tell them about the God of love. We all want to be liked and respected, and when the majority culture around you holds such views, it's tempting to make an idol out of their acceptance. There's always been pressure for Christians to abandon or modify their faith in Christ to make it more palatable to the world, to make the Christian faith easier to swallow. The real struggle for the Corinthians is that they wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to be accepted and liked by their pagan friends and still be followers of Jesus. But this idea of eating a meal in an environment where a pagan god was being honored, that goes too far. Paul says that's not something a Christian can do. You can't do it. Uh, I mean, you can do it. I mean, if you if you did do it, you're still saved. Your sins are still forgiven. You're not losing your salvation. You don't stop being a Christian. But it dishonors the one whose blood was shed for you. That's what he's trying to say. And Corinthians, you dishonor the Lord's table when you sit at a table dedicated to demons. So Paul compares what is happening at the temple feast to what happens at the Lord's table. Table, When we take communion, when we are doing more than just taking bread and sipping a cup, through the cup we are actively participating in the blood of Christ, in some way experiencing again his real presence as the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we take the bread, we are identifying with the body of Christ, the body that was crucified and killed and buried, and the resurrected body on Easter morning. The communion experience is an act of both personal and corporate worship. We have a new life in our Savior, and we share that new life with all those who gather at the same table. It is a meal of our spiritual family. So even if the food served in a pagan context is just food, and their gods are not real— it is still not a completely meaningless activity. There is no such thing as another God. But there are demonic forces at work in our world that are leading people away from the true God. Demonic forces that deceive and confuse and distract people from Christ. The Corinthians were sitting down with people who were actively participating in this demon worship, actively promoting what was contrary to Christ. And Christians, you can't do that. Christians need to be able to engage with their culture Yes, absolutely. But there will be points at which we have to say, no, that is not for me. And Paul quotes from Psalm 24. He says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
And in doing so, he wants us to know that there is nothing intrinsically evil about the world around us or the culture we live in. We don't have to live in a spiritual bubble or wrap ourselves in spiritual cellophane to somehow keep us from being contaminated by the world around us. God made everything good, but God's good things can be and have been corrupted. We know sin is everywhere. We can't avoid its stain, but because of the gospel, we do not live in fear of sin. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It is the good news of what Jesus has done, that his kingdom is at work right now all around us. The gospel says we are not defined by our past, our sin, or the mistakes we've made, what we achieve, or what we achieve. We're not defined by how good we try to be or by what others say about us. We are defined by Jesus, and he calls us his own. Jesus has freed us from our past and guarantees our future, which is the gospel. He gives us a new identity and has declared that we are his adopted children now and forever. We are saved, blessed, reconciled, gift, forgiven, made new and victorious in Jesus. And though that means we are free to do whatever we want, in response to Christ's love, we live wanting to honor him. We don't just seek our own pleasure, our own good. We have a higher calling, a higher allegiance. We're to seek the good of others and the good of Christ's kingdom. If Paul was here today, I think he would say to Christians, I want you to hang out with folks who don't believe in Jesus. I want you to stay connected with your old friends who may not share your sense of faith in Christ. I want you to fearlessly be engaged with the world around you. He would tell us to enjoy the food, the culture, the music, the art of our world. If Jesus is ever going to make sense to people outside the church, it will only happen because Christians who know how to stay connected with them, who can translate the gospel into a lifestyle that others can see and respect. In, first, uh, or in Colossians 4 or 5, Paul encourages people in Christ to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Jesus would say it, be in the world, but not of the world. Be engaged with people, even people whose lifestyle and values and actions conflict with the way of Christ, knowing that their problem is internal, not external. They need a spiritual heart transplant, just like you did. It's a matter of the heart, not just behavior. It's a matter that the Spirit of God must change by His power, not something that you can change for them. Be engaged with people outside of Christ, but don't be pulled over to the dark side. Don't get seduced into thinking that you can play both sides. Don't lean over the line so far that you slip and fall. You have to know where your allegiance lies. You have to know whose side you are on. Christ wants us to be engaged with the world around us. But we also have to be aware that there may come a point where you just have to say no. As a follower of Jesus, I have to say no. We should live without fear of our environment. We should live seeking the good of those around us, including our local community, our region, our nation. We should be part of what is going on and not live in a Christian bubble. But there will be lines that we cannot, that, that cannot be crossed. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us that wisdom of when and what those issues are. We must always consider our witness, what we are portraying when others know we are followers of Christ. We must always be aware of how we represent Christ to others. Are we being the kind of person God wants us to be? Or have we compromised our witness because we were trying to fit in? Paul summarizes his thoughts in verse 31, up until 11, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, 
even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So whatever you do, simple mundane things like eating and drinking, having a meal with a friend, spending time with others, all these things take on a greater sense of purpose when we do them with a sense that everything we do is to bring glory to God. Some of the Corinthians thought that they could play both sides. They could have it both ways. Take Holy Communion on Sunday and then participate in idol worship on Monday. Paul says it's impossible to sit at both tables. You have to choose. What idols have you been getting, have been getting their hooks into your heart? Something you fear, something you're afraid to lose, something you rely on for comfort or security, something you dwell on, something that gives your self-worth or strokes your ego. Just about anything can be an idol. You know, in ancient Egypt, they used to worship a scarab. That's a beetle that rolls up in a ball of cow to camel dung, lays its eggs inside, and then pushes the ball along the ground. Sounds silly to us today. But I know guys who prioritize their time, money, passion, energy around knocking a little white golf ball into a hole in the ground and building extravagant temples to its honor. I wonder what the ancient Egyptians would think about that. A good thing becomes an idol when we elevate it to be our most important thing. Taking communion is more than just a symbolic act. There's no special magic in the communion elements, but there is spiritual mystery in the celebration a remembrance of the past and a recognition of who is present at the table with us, the very bread of life, the eternal spring of life. Jesus is with us in the sacrament. The cup points to the death of Christ and no idol died for you to save you from your sin. The bread points to the life that is in Christ and no idol can give that eternal life. In fact, idols lull us into thinking only about this temporary life. The great German reformer Martin Luther once wrote, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is really your God and your functional Savior. Let's remember whose side we're on. Through the sacrament, let's clearly proclaim that our hearts rely on Christ alone and we belong to him, body and soul. Have a great week.